thank you for this day. Thank you for this message. I ask that you lead me, direct me faithfully. I ask that you guide me and stay on the right track and not get too far off. Father, I ask that your will would be upon us, that our mission of this church and at this church would be that which glorifies you and shows the love to those around us and keeps us from being alone. Now, today is Pentecost, sixth century, happy birthday. Today is the birth of the church, and it's the day that the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples in Jerusalem like a mighty rushing wind and like tongues of fire. And almost every church probably who is talking on Acts, with the exception of each of them, are different. Um, so we're going to Joshua, the book of Joshua 2 through 6. We'll be looking at the battle of Jericho, more specifically the story of Rahab. Now, we call them Bible stories, but they're not in fact Bible stories. Because when we say story, we give the idea that they're somehow fabled, made up, not actually true. But what we're reading are actual historical events, accurately depicted in the Bible. So we're going to look at this event, if you will. Now, the question I have asked before preparing for this is, what are we missing? If you're like me, you read through the story, the events, and all of a sudden, you take it at face value. Oh, they marched around, they fell down, they went up. Good. That's, that's all there is to it. But with God, he's kind of like an infomercial. He generally, if you look behind the story, he goes, oh, wait, there's more. So what are we missing? If we dig deeper into this event, I think we may find some theological gold. We may actually hit a Pentecostal, Pentecost-like theology or link here today. That's why we're going over it. Now, it's important to orient ourselves because many times when I read the Bible, I get to an area, a city, some other territory that they have, and I have absolutely no idea where it is. And instead of being faithful and looking it up, I just keep on going. So we're going to orient ourselves a little bit so that we know what's going on and where we're talking and the distances we're talking. So Joshua 2 begins with Joshua starting a reconnaissance mission. He decides to send out two spies. I find this extremely interesting because Joshua is one of the 12 spies that Moses sends. Now Moses has commissioned them to search out the entire land. He sends 12 people. It's because of a bad report of the 10, only Joshua and Caleb give them a good report, that they end up wandering in the desert for 40 years and nearly all of them die. So he probably decided, I don't need that many voices. He sends two. Also, they're only searching out the land between us with specific instructions to look at the city of Jericho in particular. Now, they're dispatched from a place called Acacia Grove. That might strike some memories for you. It sits 14 miles west southwest of Jericho. So they got a little bit of a hike ahead of them. But it's also the same place from which Moses dispatched Joshua and the other spies. It's also the place where we find the people of Israel creating a problem for themselves by hooking up with the little ladies from Moab sent down after being advised by Balaam to Balak. So this is the area, this all happened in the same city. So we're going to take a look at Joshua 2, 1 through 7, and it says, 
Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, that you may overtake them. But she had brought them up on the roof and hidden them with stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fjords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So here's where we're going to start digging. As soon as the spies enter the city, they're found out. So much for covert hiding. Not only that, the king now knows they're there, they're spying, they're from Israel, what their mission is, and that they've gone to Rahab's house. Even though no one tells him they went to Rahab's house, he seems to know this. Notice that's a lot of information that he had pretty quickly on this secret mission. Now we're going to continue the rest of chapter 2. It's a little long, so hang in. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, but the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all they have and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land, we will deal kindly and freely with you. Then she let them down by a rope through her window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the city wall. Notice they repeat that. We'll come back to that in a minute. And she said to them, get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of ours, which you made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord on the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own house. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guilty. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head, for the hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your word, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed. She bound the scarlet cord in her window. They departed and went through the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, 
truly the Lord has delivered the, all the land into our hands. For indeed, all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Now that's a lot of reading. But if you stop and think about what Rahab has just said, she has some impressive knowledge, not only of their scriptures, but their theology and their beliefs and their history. She brings up the defeat the defeat of King Sihon and Og. That was in Numbers 21. And that happened shortly after Aaron's death and just before Balak sends for Balaam. If you remember that, he's the donkey guy. Um, how could she know all of this, though? That's the question. Well, it says Rahab was a prostitute. So when we read it, we kind of insinuate that the spies at Lord-to-Rahab's house were nefarious. That's probably not the case. You see, her house was more like a way station, inns, taverns, some form of gathering, or combination thereof, or marriage. It's a logistical place for travelers to frequent. This is given more credence by the fact that no one even tells the king where they went, but he knows exactly where they went. They went to Rahab's house. Because this is a potential source of information for the entire area. That's why they went. They went for the information, not for the story. But Rahab didn't seek only to save her life. She sought to seek her entire family. She did this as she accepted God as the one and only God. Now that might be a pretty long statement based on what we read, but I think if we dig into this, I can prove it. If we go to Hebrews 11, verse 31, now this is the part of the hall of faith where we look at Abraham and all the great people who have faith throughout the Bible, Rahab's listed there. They say, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. Notice she believed when she had received the spies with peace. James echoes this in James 2.25. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? But how did they get that from her statement? How did they get all that? Let's read Joshua 2.11 again. As soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of them. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. A quick look at what she just declared. God, your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he rules supreme. He is sovereign over heaven. See, he's supreme and sovereign over birth. Now this is important because Rahab is a Canaanite. Canaanites are believing in multiple gods, little g, not real gods. But she is going against that. And these little g's, little gods, they operate in the heavens and on earth. That's kind of what gods do, if you know geometry. That's where our God operates. However, keep in mind, she runs an inn tavern, brothel, whatever you will, a logistics hub. We'll call it like a mixture of a modern-day truck stop and a server farm, where all of the information, all of the news, all of the gossip, it all comes to this one place for the entire area. That's what she runs. And she has to be sensitive to everybody's religious beliefs, because if you read the news today, you know that when you're insensitive to people's religious beliefs, bad things can happen. And you can lose business. She's got to be up on the times if anybody wants to tell her. It's through this level of information and stories and events that she put it all together. The 
offspring besides the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel. He's the one true God. And when Rahab refers to the Lord in that verse, that's the English that we put Lord. However, in the Hebrew, she actually says Yahweh. She calls him by name. That removes the God of kings. What, were the, what gods were they? They were Baal or Baal, Marduk, Ashtaroth, or Ishtar. Those were basically the same. And she basically invalidates them as false gods by declaring the God of Yahweh being the God of heaven and earth. In fact, she continued, she didn't just say God on heaven and on earth. She specifically stated in heaven above and on earth beneath. This probably caught their attention because it's a very specific saying. In fact, that specific wording is only found three other places in the entire Bible prior to this. And for that level of knowledge, I find it astounding. Those three places are Exodus 20, verse 4, the Ten Commandments. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath. Second place, Deuteronomy 5.8, a repeated of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath. In the third place, Deuteronomy 4.39, Moses is speaking about the warnings of idolatry. It says, therefore, know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Now, if she knew all of that, she probably knew verses 40 and 41, which I believe is what's sealing the deal for her and why she is crying out. And that says, You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. This, I believe, is the promise upon which Rahab is hanging her hat. She's declaring God as God and that he's given the land to the people to praise him. So she's hanging her hat there. Now, there's no scriptural basis to know how she knew all of this. But again, my hypothesis is this, that she is running a business that is the information highway of the time. She's hearing everything. She's putting it together. In fact, anyone who wanted to go in and out of Jericho from that well or in and out of the entire land of Canaan from that direction had to go through Jericho because of the geography of the layout. So the question I still have is, how long has she been saying that? Is this her profession of faith, seeking a, breaking away from, from the sin she's committing and seeking God? Is she now reaching out to the people of God to somehow get to God? I don't know. One thing I do know is this is her salvation moment, and it's extremely important to her and to us. The question is, why is it important to us? Well, for starters, we can look at genealogy. Rahab will marry an Israelite person, and then her son will be Boaz. That name might ring some bells if you know the story of Ruth. Ruth will marry Boaz. Why is that important? Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. Thus, Rahab will be the great-great-grandmother of King David. In fact, Rahab is one of only five women listed by Matthew in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And those five women are Tamar, Ruth, who we saw in the text, Bathsheba, 
Rahab and Mary. Mary being the only one who's actually clean. But that raises another question. Since she is a Canaanite, I had to ask the question, why wasn't a tent to let her live? You see, God gave a commandment and an order. Everybody else in the city would die except for those who are with her. And if she knew the scripture, she had to know the order. So Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5, is one of the places for that order. We've got to look at it. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, and the Gergesites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations, mightier and greater than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them, and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. For the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. Now Rahab was a Canaanite. They showed her mercy. They allowed her to live. They allowed her to marry their sons. Why is God not serious about this? Let's look at another part where he issues the order again. Deuteronomy 20, 16 to 18. But of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. You shall utterly destroy them, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they seek you and do according to their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. You see, everyone else was different because of who they chose, not because of who they were. God is not ordering the death of people because of race, nationality. There's only one race, the human race. You're either saved or not saved. Here, people who wanted to serve other gods, the wages of sin is death. There you go. Get what you want. God is the same. You see, Rahab is now serving God. She's converted. That means that Rahab is no longer a Canaanite. She's basically become a Jew. All her stuff was clean. Now, God, see, our stuff isn't inherently evil. Again, Abraham wasn't born a Jew. He came from Ur of the Chaldeans. His faith in Abraham was found righteous, and that's where he started the Jewish nation. No person in the Bible is any different than any of us, with the exception of Jesus. Jesus is 100% man in the flesh, but 100% God in the spirit. When he was tempted and lived as us, he did not sin. Later, we'll see that God will actually condemn the Israelites for a treaty they make with the Gibeonites in Joshua 9, 15 through 21. So why is he okay with Rahab but not with the Gibeonites? Because the Gibeonites gave their lives to continue to live their lives as they are living them. They don't want to be gods. They want to continue being Gibeonites. That's the problem. If you want to continue to be you, be you. Sin over it. Be God. So the orders were exactly what they were, and Rahab had become one of them. 
And the God of the Old Testament is exactly the same as the God of the New Testament. He doesn't change. He cannot change. So even under the Abrahamic covenant, even under the Old Testament, the law of Moses, anyone could be saved. The difference is that those people were saved afterwards. And here we're seeing Rahab being saved. Just as we were of this world and by faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we decided that when we accepted the fact that he was born of the Virgin Mary, as told by the Bible, that he was 100% man in the flesh, 100% God in the spirit, lived a sinless life, sacrificed himself, not was murdered, not was killed, sacrificed himself for our sins, rose again on the third day, and now makes intercession for us when we are sinners and can't get there except through him, and we accept that, that's where we are changed, and we're no longer of this world. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Here's where the old and new start to mingle. There was even a sign. She had a scarlet cord which she hung in her window. Didn't hide it. No one was going in or out, but she had that sign in her window, a marking. We see in the New Testament, a marking. Ash Wednesday, we do a marking. There's a marking on the forehead. The Antichrist will mock this with a marking on the right hand of the forehead. Markings are important. And it marks those who are to be saved for the wrath to come on this world. See, Rahab and those like her, those with her, they were to be removed while sinning. Joshua, at this point, has moved everyone from Acacia Grove across the Jordan, and they're now sitting at Gilgal, roughly 1.95 miles northwest of Jericho. But it's important to notice that after crossing the Jordan, there's a second sign. This is the sign that God gave to Abraham for the covenant. And he was confused and he was circumcised. Moses circumcised them and he led them out. They had a little bit of a mishap with some bad spies, wandered 40 years, didn't do it. Now God is bringing them across the Jordan to enter the promised land, which he promised Abraham, tried to do through Moses, but the people wouldn't have it. Now he's actually doing, again, the circumcising. They're entering the covenant land. It's after they've crossed and Joshua is close to Jericho that he looks up and he actually sees Jesus. This is a theophany, meaning Jesus appearing in the Old Testament before we know him as Jesus in the New Testament. Now we're in Joshua 5, 13 through 15. It says, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said to him, No, but as the commander of the army of the Lord I have now come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Something that is noticeable. No man walking around with a drawn sword in that day is out for a walk. You are ready for battle. He was ready. Joshua asks, are you for us or against us? Is the actual answer, it says no. He's not for them or against them. Because he is completely righteous. Everyone can come to him. He wants everybody to come to him, but they won't. 
There comes a point where man's heart is hardened to the point that they will never accept it. We know that. That's even in the New Testament. So Jesus is saying, I am for anybody who seeks me. And if he said for you, that would have alienated anybody else who wanted to come. By saying no, he also allowed Rahab to come. This is echoed in our New Testament, Revelation 2, 15, where Jesus is talking to the church. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which point I hate. Notice he doesn't hate the Nicolaitans. He hates their doctrine. Their doctrine that there is a different way to God. God doesn't hate anybody. He wants us all to be saved. And he does hate the things we do. And he is just. And he will judge. But no one who goes to hell or the lake of fire is senseless. They choose it because at some point in their life, they were given an opportunity to choose Jesus and to turn away. Jesus tells Joshua to remove his shoe, much like he did Moses in Exodus 3.5, when they made the pit. Now, I'm starting to dig into this. I didn't get all the way through it, so I'm not going to make a profound statement. But the interesting thing is Moses, the word used is remove your shoes from your feet, plural. It appears Joshua is told to remove his feet from his foot. If you go to the story of Ruth, she was this great, the symbol for land. That might be in there, but I don't know. I haven't got that far. I'm not making a statement. Just letting you in on my confusion here. So if you remember this event, you know that the orders that Jesus gives to Joshua, those orders are, at one, stand. I want you to walk all the way from Gilgal to Jericho, around it one time and come back. Have seven priests and seven trumpets in front, but do it completely silent for six days. That's the first part. Now, Jericho is an area of about eight to nine acres, we believe. It also sat 800 feet below sea level. It is both physically and morally very low. Using an average walking speed of three miles an hour, the first six days looks something like this. They leave Gilgal to Jericho. That is 1.95 miles, roughly 48 days. They walk around the nine-acre perimeter of Jericho, 2,415 feet, 0.94, miles per day, 11 days. 1.95 mile hike back, 48 days. First six days took them a grand total of one hour and 47 minutes each. Then they walked 4.35 miles. Now, can you imagine what it's like inside the city? They're all scared to death that they're coming. They're all faint-hearted. We know that from Rahab's story. And here comes the, the entire army marching around the city. Day one, you're probably terrified. Eleven minutes later, off they go. How many days does it take until you're no longer actually scared? Until you think they're actually looking for a hole in your huge wall, and they just can't find it. How long does your stand against their God start to take hold when you're not terrified? You know, what is it, day four, day five, where they start looking at the sundial going, 11 minutes, we're going. The question is, is that how we have become as the church about Jesus' appearance to us? Who thought that he would come and get us? in an event known as the rapture. 
See, 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4 says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Jumping ahead to verses 8 through 7, the beginning of verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. He is long-suffering and patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Just like Jericho, one day, day seven, is coming. So day seven, the orders are complete. We're good. March down, seven times they're going to come. Then they're going to let loose. When they let loose with the trumpets and then the screams, the shouts of the people, Jesus promised them that the walls will fall flat. Then he tells them, go up, so to speak. That word up, I want to take a look at it. Because it has several different meanings. One is ascend. Ascend is just up. Lead up. Lead out. Bring up. Often cause to rise. If we remove that from maybe a Jericho only and we look forward to our promise, the rapture, it's all very rapture-esque terms if you ask me. And those... When we compare that to the theology in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 18, the rapture verses, if you will, given to us by Paul, it says, For the Lord himself, that's Jesus, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive and remain, shall be caught up. Latin to Greek, caught up is autopazo. We transfer that to Latin, rapture. Rapture, get rapture. So rapture is not in your English Bible, but it is in your Bible. Caught up together with them, that's the dead and Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Air actually means atmosphere. We're talking about within the worldly atmosphere. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now the day has come. Day seven is here. What's that look like? 1.95 miles, 48 minutes, no difference. This time, seven times around Jericho, 3.15 miles, or one hour and 16 minutes of pacing around Jericho. Lap one, everybody in Jericho is probably going, seven minutes, no problem. They're no longer scared about the invasion, right? But then comes lap two, and everybody goes, something different. They might think, well, they're really looking for a hole in the map. Maybe this was Rahab. Maybe Jesus foresaw this. He thought maybe some people he was supposed to save were going to be a little bit lackadaisical at this point of his promises, of his warnings. And so he allows them to keep circling a few more times until they say, I can actually see it now. And they decide to go to Rahab. You see, we should see it today. There's a lot of prophetic things happening. Maybe we've become prophetic. It says that some will be ashamed at the appearing of Jesus because they were not ready. Paul tells us it is now high time to arise out of sleep. What's he saying? He's saying, knock it off. 
break away from your sin, get right with God, walk it down, and preach to people, not caring what they will call you, caring what it will cost you, because they can't take anything from you. So, by lap seven, they're probably laughing at you, probably. Much like the world is laughing at us who continue to believe that Jesus will come back and appear in the atmosphere and take us, like he promised. Because he promised is why we believe. Now, in total, they have done 13 laps around the city. And every lap, that scarlet cord is hanging from Rahab's house, Martha. Now, the gates are shut. No one's allowed in. No one's allowed out. Her risk of discovery is rather low. But it's still Martha, and it's still a sign. Then comes the blast of the horn, the shout of the people, and the walls fall down. Interestingly, remember, Rahab's house is on the wall. They said it twice. In the Bible, if you see something repeated, that's equal to us in English capitalizing, underlining, bolding, and putting an exclamation point. It means pay attention. This is important. So, the spies who went to save her, they didn't have to negotiate the entire city to find her. Her house was lower here than they would think. However, I'm sure at the collapse of the wall, everyone who had been lulled to sleep, they start thinking something is happening. Panic and chaos most likely ensued. You see, it's in that moment that Rahab and her family knew they were right. Go back to the first six days. Can you imagine the letdown of thinking that your salvation moment has come, that promised saving moment has come, and they march around and they just leave, and they just leave? How many times can you be let down before you start to doubt? Obviously, she held on to faith because now she knows she was right. She had lowered them by a rope to get them out of their city, but now, if you will, her house is lowered to ground level, and they just ran their suitcases out. Porters put it on the, the cart, and off they go. We have caught their flight. They're safe. The rest of the city and their defenses are now lying in a heap of rubble before them. There's no time to change their mind. There's no negotiating a plea. There's no saving their life. There's no come to Jesus moment. Their death is sealed. That time has come. Notice Rahab's family, they had to come to where she was. She couldn't go get them at that point. Once the invasion started, the house wasn't even where it was before. It couldn't be found. No one who had delayed and now saw the walls come down could go to Rahab's house to find them. The house wasn't in the same place. Much like us, interestingly, we will not be in the same place. When the rapture happens, the church goes with us. It says that God will send a strong delusion to those who failed to accept his gospel, that had heard the gospel before and turned away from it. But again, like an infomercial, wait, there's more. The saving promise to Rahab, we read, she only asked about her family. The promise they gave her had nothing to do with her family. She said, anyone who is found in your house will be saved. She could have brought anyone. Much like Lot went to tell his son-in-laws and they just rejected and turned away from him. They all died. Some people accept Rahab's plea for safety. 
Verse 30. Jesus said to John 14, 2 through 3, Behold, I go to make a place for you, for in my Father's house are many mansions. And I will come and get you and will take you to where I am. You see, Jesus will remove his bride, the church, from the earth before the wrath to come. Just as Israel removed Rahab and her family from the judgment on the city before they killed them. And when we are removed, literally all hell on earth will break loose. If you think it's bad now, it's worse. Because once the church is gone and it's in the hands of evil, then they get what they want. They don't want the prodding, moralistic condemning of their actions. When they get what they want, what's going on in the world today is going to seem like an all-inclusive vacation that's been paid for compared to what is coming. You do not want to be left behind. You do not want Satan to judge you. If you're looking, if you're paying attention, you can see the prophecies of Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 circling us today. Something is going to happen here, and the warnings are all around us. This sin, the love of many growing cold. What is good is called evil. What is evil is called good. We kill the innocent and most vulnerable among us out of convenience. This will not go unpunished. We have the times of Noah and Lot circling us. If you're paying attention, something is going to happen here. It's kind of scary. We must be right with Jesus. We can't follow God, the little G, and we can't take all the ways to heaven that the church is professing today. There's only one way. It's only through Jesus. He is the one way, the narrow path. Rahab got it right. right. She was saved. Everyone else got it wrong, and they died. Those are the stakes today. You have to be ready. This is one fight you do not want to miss. You can't be late. Hebrews 9.27 says, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. If anybody has ever heard of Penn Jillette, who's the speaking half of Penn & Teller, the magician, he's a very outspoken atheist, but he said one of the wisest things I've heard in a long time. And I want to read you a quote from him. See if this doesn't strike a chord. Could be scary. He said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming for me and you didn't believe it, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than nothing. He is 100% correct. And that probably should affect all of us. Like I laugh all the time that God gave us a situation where we could tell somebody about him, and we didn't. Because what if that's their Rahab moment, their salvation moment? Remember Esther. Who knows if you were born for such a time as this? He will still save through some other ways, but you will die. 
We have to be faithful. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but according one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. That means come together, not just on Sunday. Small groups, gather together with Christians, strengthen yourself as you see the prophecy and the warnings perfect. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Now the Holy Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Does that not sound like our media and our politicians today? Speaking in lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. You can't say one thing is good for some and then completely flip it when it comes to others. You must get it. That is Jesus to be saved. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to choose Jesus. Now is the time to save the lost. Jesus gave a command. For you shall be known as mine by your love for one another. That's the commandment Jesus gave after Judas left to his faithful disciples. That command still stands for us today. And the question of our operation can't be, what are we doing for Adam? We have to be showing love for everyone. And how do we do that? We have to choose wisely and choose Jesus. Now, everybody is going to be put to the test. They will be tested, tried. The only way to take gold that has been pulled from the earth in its fullest respect is to heat it and put it under pressure. And then scrape the dross off. If you have a whole lot of time, then trim it by cutting it. Our time is short. The only way we seem to come to God through bad things. Blessings through the Bible, if you read the Old Testament accounts, don't necessarily bring people to God. Only when the bad things happen. If you are his, he's going to put you under pressure. He's going to put you in the fire. But time is short. Jesus Christ died for you. And trust me, I know several people, most people, are feeling it in some way, whether you admit it or not, whether it's something that you've told people about or not. Something in our life or our entire life is being put under pressure, put in heat. We can't turn from God. Why does God turn everything of the world out of it? Because we're looking to him. Don't wait, because once the walls come down, you only have two destinations to eternity. That is heaven or the lake of fire. That is the only options we leave the world if we do not give them the message of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunities. We thank you for the prophecies of your word that today we live in the most prophetic times the world has ever seen except for you walking on the earth and I'm gone. Father, we ask that you would wake us out of sleep, that you would shake the tree bearing fruit, that you would send us out into the world that desperately needs us We complain about our nation, our leaders. We complain about the current state of everything. And yet you told us we would humble ourselves and pray. Turn from our wicked ways and repent. Seek your face. That you would heal our land. The curse upon our land isn't because of those who don't seek you. It's because we who claim your name haven't sought you. 
you were very accommodating and forgiving of those who did strange things that came to your attention. You get rid of the pride. And those who declared themselves as holy, those who declared themselves as following you, you didn't have as much leniency because you accepted them to use what you had. You know that we are sinners. We'll never be perfect. We don't expect to fail. We expect to pass. Much like we are the bride, you are the groom. Nowhere in the Bible is the bride told to love the groom, only to honor him. When we know we can't love you, the groom is to love the bride because you loved us the best. You loved us perfectly. We can't love you. Not you. We ask for your forgiveness, for your salvation, and that you would lead us to our King, Jesus Christ. We'll now have our last song.